Have you ever noticed how important perspective is? A slight change in perspective can change the way that you interpret everything. And I think we're going to see that in our text this morning. But just to help us see the the power of perspective being changed, I was reminded of an article, uh, a letter that was written from a girl to her parents from college. Uh, And it goes this way. Uh, It begins, Dear Mom and Dad, Since I left for college, I have been remiss in writing, and I am sorry about my thoughtlessness in not having written before. So I'll bring you up to date before I do. Please... Would you sit down? Are you sitting down? It is very important that you sit down before you continue reading this letter. I'm getting along pretty well now that the skull fracture and concussion I got when I jumped out of my dormitory window, when it got caught on uh, fire shortly after my arrival, it's pretty well healed. I only get those sick headaches a couple of days, uh, a couple of times a day. And fortunately, the fire in my dormitory and my jump was witnessed by an attendant at a gas station. He ran over to look at me, uh, took me to a hospital, and continued to visit me there. And when I got out of the hospital, I had nowhere to live because of the burnout condition of my room. So he was kind enough to invite me to move in and share his basement bedroom apartment with him. It's sort of small, but very cute. He's a very fine young man, and we have fallen deeply in love, and we are planning to get married. We haven't set an exact date, but it will be before my pregnancy begins to show. Yes, Mom and Dad, I am pregnant. I know how much you are looking forward to, beginning, uh, to being grandparents, and I know you will welcome the baby and give it the same tender care and devotion that you gave me when I was a child. In conclusion, now that I have brought you up to date, I want to tell you that there was no dormitory fire. I did not have a concussion or a skull fracture. I was not in the hospital. I'm not pregnant, and there is no boyfriend in my life. However, I have failed history and science, and I wanted you to see that those results need to be viewed in proper perspective. It's amazing how a letter like that can sort of change your life in just a moment, the way you view things, see things more clearly. You you get that same kind of effect when you read Jonah 1 and 2. You know, you read Jonah 1 and you see this, this one prophet who seems to be running from the Lord very clearly, and then you get to Jonah 2 and you see the heart of a different kind of man and the way that he approaches and views God. And that's exactly what we're going to see in our text this morning. See, we're back in our No Escape series in the book of Jonah. This morning, we're going to see that there is no escape in, in Jonah 1.17 to 2.10. Now, just as we saw last time, in 2 Kings 14, uh, we find that Jonah was a historical prophet. He prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II. And Jeroboam II uh, was a, a king that, that reigned during a time of prosperity and growth in the nation. They were able to actually expand the borders uh, back over the territories that had been taken by Syria And it was a time where they had a lot of freedom to grow economically. Things seemed to be going well. But we also find that while the the country seemed to expand its borders, simultaneously we are told that it was a, a reign that so much like the other kings of Israel was characterized by God's voice saying, and yet this king Jeroboam did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so this was a king who had followed the the sins of his fathers in leading the nation in idolatry. It was a sinful nation. Israel was not pursuing God. And even though this letter really is about Nineveh, as we're going to see next chapter, it is for Israel. And it's important for us to remember that, that Israel needed to hear this message about God's intentions. Now, if God announces judgment on Nineveh for their sins, don't you think that the king of Israel who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, should be humbled by this letter. See, Jonah isn't ultimately about a great fish, about a great prophet, 
but it's ultimately about our great God. And so we want to see what it is that Jonah has to say to us about God this morning. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see this. If you're writing notes, this is our big idea. It's that God is not safe, but he's the only sovereign who saves us from death. Our God is not safe, but he is the only sovereign who saves us from death. We're going to see that this morning in a couple of ways. The first is this. It's that our sovereign God is not safe. Our sovereign God is not safe. But before we go there, will you join me in a a time of prayer, asking for God's help? Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we come before you, we are coming to your word and we are desperately needy to hear from you. And Father, there are so many ways that we can hear the word preached this morning, that we can mishear it, um, that we can misuse it. But Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear clearly what your spirit has to say to us in your word. Father, bring clarity, bring conviction. Father, we pray that you would transform our hearts, that you would change us, that you would speak to us, that you would have mercy on us. Father, we want, have, we want to live life from your perspective, not from ours. So Lord, speak to us today, we do pray. Amen. So first, our sovereign God is not safe. We see this uh, in a couple of different ways. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever read a good book about how to read a book. That sounds clever, right? Like, before I read, I need to read how to read. Uh, well, there is a famous book on this by Mortimer, Al- um, Mortimer Adler. Uh, you might remember this book. It's called How to Read a Book. And in that book, if you read through, he gives you hints for how to read a book for all it's worth, how to read intelligently. And he said one important way to read a book is to begin with the introduction and the conclusion. Uh, see where he says he's going to go and see where he, he says he's been or whoever this author is. And I think that's a, a good way to read books of the Bible. Uh, I think it's a good way to read Jonah. I think it's a good way to read Jonah one seventeen to 2.10. See, as you read those verses, the way that these verses begin and end, in the, the Hebrew Bible, this text actually begins in one seventeen. That's where chapter 2 begins, and it ends in 2.10. And I, I think that it's because he's trying to shape for us He's trying to set out for us the way that we should interpret what's going on in between. And so you'll notice that in 117, we are told there, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then if you drop down to 210, you'll notice that he says this, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry dry land. See, Yahweh, Israel's covenant-keeping God, he appointed that fish. He, he appointed the fish to swallow up Jonah, where Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of that fish. Now, just take that in for a second. Think about this. God willed, destined this fish to eat Jonah. God willed to get, uh, Jonah to get eaten by a giant sea monster. Now, doesn't your imagination run wild with questions when you just think about that whole situation? Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the, t- the, the TV show Catching Monsters, uh, where you have a guy that goes out and he catches some of the most terrifying creatures that you've ever seen in the water. Uh, I used to love to swim in the ocean. I don't love to swim in the ocean anymore. If you knew what was out there, you wouldn't either. But, but here we find an image of a terrifying beast unlike anything that rivals an episode of Catching Monsters. It is a, a huge, massive water beast that comes and swallows up Jonah. And so your, your mind, your imagination, I'm sure just runs wild with what must have happened in that moment. Think about it. I mean, was it a fish or was it a whale? I mean, did they have those categories? 
And did he, did he breathe when he was in this fish? Did he live on sushi while he was living in it? And what did those gastric juices do to his skin? The commentators talk much about these things. But that doesn't seem to be Jonah's concern here, the book of Jonah. See, here's a question that does matter, though. Is Jonah's fish a fish of judgment or a fish of salvation? Now, that's an important question. See, the natural answer seems to be, when you read this, judgment. I don't know any of us, at first blush, when we would read this text, would say, oh, Jonah got eaten by a fish. I want that kind of mercy in my life. So judgment. Judgment. Natural answer. And just rehearse the situation of Jonah 1. It makes sense. Jonah disobeyed God. He ran from God. Abandoned his God. As a prophet who was called to speak to a people, he ran away. He went AWOL on God. He sinned greatly. The sailors sacrificed Jonah to the raging ocean to satisfy his God, and the storm ceased, seemingly affirming the judgment of God on this man. The sea and its monsters, they represented chaos and the absence of the presence of God who brings order. And in all of this, it seems that Jonah has faced nothing but judgment. Yet, here, take note. Jonah's God stops the storms and he tames the monsters of the sea. He he goes dog whisperer on the chaos of the storm. He says, cease and it is still. He tells the monster of the sea to go and to yield and he does. I mean, who is this God who is able to have this kind of authority over storms, the seas, and her monsters. I think the picture that we get in this moment is about a greatly sovereign God who is sovereign beyond the vision of the nations and the gods that they have. They had parochial gods who had local authority. And this God, his authority knows no bounds. That's exactly the image that Jonah wants us to have at the very front of this message. God is unrivaled in his sovereignty. There is no jurisdiction in which God is not authoritative. But don't miss this. Everything in this text envisions this fish as salvation, not judgment. See, God turns this instrument of horror into an instrument of his divine grace. This monster becomes a submarine. Did you notice that? He is a huge, slimy, ugly, stinky submarine. And it's there that God is going to teach Jonah about the magnitude of his power and his authority and his grace. See, God appointed this monster to rescue him and to teach him that there is nowhere to run but God. See, God directed this great fish to teach Jonah that there is nowhere to flee from his presence. God ordained this primordial beast to expose that running from God in sin always leads to death. God sent this creature to show that God is a sovereign creator over the chaotic waters of this life and even those events, storms, and creatures that seem to run so freely. God is sovereign and free above all others and able, able to use terrifying circumstances to bring about beauty and life out of death. See, God appointed a fish to swallow Jonah to transform Jonah and to use Jonah. See, our sovereign God He saves. He saves. But he is not safe. I I love an image that we get of this in C.S. Lewis's work. It's a a great illustration, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, In this book that he writes, 
it speaks of these children who find this like shift robe that they sort of walk into and it's a portal into another world. A world that is um, characterized by the curse of this white witch. Uh, and this white witch, um, uh, it says that she has brought about this curse to where it is always winter, but never Christmas. Uh, it is always cold, but there is never anything good. There is never hope. And so in this world, uh, these kids meet a beaver, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they begin to tell them about this lion-like king who has come to bring about salvation in this world. And as they tell them about this king, they mention that he is, in fact, a lion. And it's when he says this, when they say this, that uh, all of a sudden, one of the children, Susan, hears that, and she says, ooh, ooh, I, I thought that he was a man. Is he quite safe? I mean, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a, a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're neither braver than most or else just silly. Either braver than most or just silly. And then, and then Lucy says, then he isn't safe? To which Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. There is no other king. He is the sovereign. He is a fearless, fearful God. And the Bible envisions God as a mighty lion, not a domesticated house cat. But catch this. That means that God can use some of the most terrifying experiences in our lives to save and transform, not crush us. So what if God, this morning, has appointed a great fish for us to swallow you? Not as judgment, but as salvation, to bring about some change in your life that would not be brought about except for this great fish. Just think about that this morning. What if God is transforming you in the belly of a fish, not only to transform you, but even more to make you usable in the lives of others, to bring God more glory, to do more good to others. See, Jonah's fish came to save him from running from God. God loved him too much to allow Jonah to escape God. Do you get that? He loved him too much to let that happen. And he was willing to go to the uttermost to make sure that that never happened. So as he comes to him, he finds the glory of God in the belly of this fish. Jonah's fish came to save him from running from God. You know, he's the shepherd, God is, who chases after that one sheep. That's the nature of who God is. But when he catches wayward sheep, he also teaches and disciplines them to keep them close to the only good shepherd of their souls. Jonah knew about God's sovereignty. But, but here, he's experiencing it in real time. Jonah 1, I've got great theology about the creator of heaven and earth. Jonah 2, I'm in the belly of the fish, and I'm seeing it more clearly than ever. But when he catches this wayward sheep, God is changing him. See, in this moment, God's sovereignty, and maybe you've had these experiences in your life, that, that theology that you spent your whole time learning, maybe even as a child in, in Sunday school, all of a sudden, life hits, and, and all of a sudden, that sovereignty that you've learned about God becomes palpable and visceral in your life, right? You sense it in a new and meaningful way that you never did before. And that sovereignty that, that you always tried to grip begins to grip you in new and powerful ways. And that's exactly the experience that Jonah has in this fish. 
You know, I'm, um, when I think about this, the nature of God and the way that he works in the people of God, in this way, I'm always reminded of um, uh, one of my favorite saints. Um, uh, when, I, when you come into my office, you might see a, a picture, and, and it's this picture. It's a picture of a shepherd. Pretty cool, right? Like, somebody drew this. I think that's awesome because I can't draw anything. Like, I'm a little bit like stick man figures, and um, maybe I'll draw, like, an arm or something. I never have been able to do a hand. I've never gotten that far. Um, and so when I see people that can create these things, I just think this is beautiful. This is amazing that God creates people that can create this kind of stuff. Uh, one thing you might not realize when you come in is the title on it. And it's actually, um, I didn't know this when I first had it. Um, it was given to me by my mom, but it's by Johnny Erickson Tata, um, a woman who, she was jumping in the Chesapeake Bay. Maybe you've heard her story. Misjudged the, you know, the, the depths. And as a teenager, um, became paralyzed. And has lived almost her whole life paralyzed, missed out on so much in life, uh, lived a paralyzed life. Um, And so what that means is is that uh, when she drew this, she didn't draw it with her hands, she actually drew this with her teeth. Put a pen in her mouth, drew this, um, and so that makes me feel even less capable as a human. Um, And yet even more amazed at the grace of God. Think about this. Just take this in, in for a second. The pictures of a shepherd that she drew with her teeth because she cannot use her hands because she was paralyzed and she knows that God is sovereign and has no problems at all with believing in a sovereign God who is good and for her. I'm just wondering if, if God allowed you to be paralyzed, what kind of image would you draw of him? Would you still see him as good? Would you still draw him as a shepherd of your soul who loves and cares for you? You know, she understands what it is to be swallowed up by a fish and to experience those gastric juices and have her attention turned in the only place there is to turn in the darkness of death, and that is God himself. And brothers and sisters, God will take us to fearsome places to see him more clearly. And that's exactly what God did in Johnny's life. Now, she's even going through cancer today and, and still yet using her voice to do nothing but to turn attention towards the glory of God. And that is exactly the way that God wants to use Jonah. He wants him to understand what it is to be swallowed and what it is to to love God in that and to meet God in that and to have his heart changed and transformed so that his perspective is new on the world and everything that he sees. I love what Johnny says. She says, this paralysis that she has is my greatest mercy. And isn't that true of Jonah? That fish was a fish of mercy in his life. You know, some of you have run from God and God has appointed a great fish for you. A great fearsome fish for you. Some of you experienced prison, divorce, unmet longings for marriage, lost or dead-end jobs, homelessness, the death of a loved one, chronic illness, all horrific experiences. And yet, in the midst of this, could it be that our sovereign God really is at work? Could it be that he's working these things together for your good and his glory? I mean, I know he says that in Romans 8, 28, but do we really believe it when we're in the belly of the fish? You know, it's in those moments the real question isn't really whether or not God is in control or good. The question is a question of our heart posture towards our good and sovereign God. Will you repent of sin? And will your heart soften to him or will it Harden and calcify. And sometimes I wonder what would happen to Jonah if he just didn't repent in the belly of that fish. If he just decided to, to let everything just lie. Would he get stuck there? 
Or some of you, maybe this morning, just stuck in the belly of the fish because we refuse to raise our gaze to the maker of heaven and earth, either for the first time or the first time in a long time. And God is calling us to look to him for what only he can provide. So if you're God's child, just ask yourself, what is it that God's seeking for you even in those darkest places? I think it's more of himself. So seek and find him. Trust Hebrews 12, that every discipline that comes from the Lord is for us as children to draw, him, to draw us to himself, to give us more of himself. See, God is at work in the fish that he sends. Great fish invite us to look to our great God. But take note of how Jonah responds in chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. Here we have a prayer. And we, we see how Jonah's heart has changed. And there what we see is, is that God saves and transforms Jonah's heart in the belly of the monster. God saves and transforms Jonah's heart in the belly of the monster. Now, the the temptation in Jonah is to consider the gastric juices in this fish and how it would have affected his body, those kinds of things. But the book of Jonah is more concerned with what the belly of this fish did to Jonah's heart. See, verses 1 to 9 present a prayer, a, a prayer of thanksgiving, very similar to the thanksgiving prayers of Psalms. And if you read those, uh, you'll notice that they have these elements, that uh, a thanksgiving psalm is going to have a, a summary of an answered prayer, a, a report of a, a personal crisis in that rescue, and then a vow of praise. So you'll notice that also verses 4 and 7 end with this vision of the Lord in his temple. So that kind of breaks up the sections in verse 4 and then verse 7. And then those last two verses speak of the salvation of God. But Jonah's prayer tells us about Jonah's heart. And take note of how the perceived crisis of chapter 1, that perceived crisis, God calling Jonah to do something he did not want to do, shifts and changes in chapter 2. His heart changes in crisis and his perspective shifts His great fear is being driven from the presence of God here. He was running from God, and now he is fearful of being driven from the presence of God. Do you see how his heart has changed? See, this great theologian of chapter 1 has been awakened to the weight of the sovereignty of his God. And that perspective has changed the way that he interprets everything. You almost wonder if this is the same Jonah. Well, we'll see this in three different ways. First, notice in verses 1 to 4 that God drove Jonah from his presence so that Jonah would seek him. God drove Jonah from his presence so that he would seek him. You you can see that in the first four verses of chapter 2. Look what it says. Jonah 2, 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of this fish, saying, I called out to you, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, and yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. So take note. That distress over the the fact of God's will caused Jonah to run from God in Jonah 1. But distress over the reality of God's sovereignty caused him to run to God in Jonah 2. See, the distress in the belly of Sheol, this distress is characterized as being in the belly of Sheol in verse 2. Now, now Sheol is just the place of the dead. And so this, this fish is compared to death. The belly of this fish is pictured as what it means to be in the place of the dead. 
Now, that would make this fish seem to be an instrument of judgment. And isn't it funny how Jonas now sees God at work in his attempted escape? Did you notice that? Like, Jonah was running, and now, like, he's saying that this was God's fault. Notice what he says. He says, for you cast me into the deep, in verse 3, speaking of God. And in verse 4, I am driven away from your sight. But he was running from God's sight. And now he understands himself as being driven from God's sight. I mean, didn't the sailors cast him into the sea, into the deep? Wasn't it them that did that? And yet here, why is it that he credits the Lord with it? And then you want to ask Jonah, driven, really? I mean, weren't you running? Didn't you run to Tarshish? I mean, you couldn't get away from God fast enough. Then you went down to Joppa, and then you went down into the boat. And then you find yourself in this pit, this, this horrible dark place, as far as you can get away from God, and all of a sudden you feel like you've been driven from God. Has anybody ever felt that way before? You find yourself in a place in life that is dark, and you can't understand why things aren't working well and why it feels like God is against you, and you, you don't remember the fact that you haven't sought the face of the Lord, that you've been disobedient to the Lord, that you've run from Him. And that's exactly where Jonah finds himself, and yet here I believe there's something more. I think what he's saying is, I see God as being with me every step of the way that I ran. See here, catch this, Jonah ran from God, and God said, let me help you with that. Let me help you sense what it is to run from me. He sent a great fish to swallow him and make a a makeshift submarine to carry him as far from God as possible into the utter depths of the sea. And at first glance, this looks like an aquatic hearse carrying him to death the god of the dead in the ancient near east interesting picture uh his name was mott right and if you you see images of him he was actually pictured just as a giant mouth right now think about this the god of death is a giant mouth um i don't know if any of you like i'm from the south so we just like always the southeast, they always hung dead things on their walls, like all kinds of dead things, any dead thing they could find, sometimes even roadkill. And we had this um, one family that they just had all these fish all over their walls. Have you ever seen this? Yeah, like bass. And have you ever seen the way that they will take and they will freeze a bass on the wall whenever they're trying to picture it? It's always with that mouth like wide open, isn't it? Like, like that, or maybe like the lips out, you know, like that, you know what I'm saying? Can y'all do that with me? Y'all are boring. So anyway, like, like this, and we got the mouth open. You know, the idea is, is like, wow, that is a wide mouth. You can imagine how somebody who's thinking about death and trying to personify it would, would personify it as a, a fish with this large mouth just open, swallowing humanity. And that's exactly the kind of image that we have here. It, it's that death has swallowed up Jonah. And Jonah is literally in the grave, and he's going in the utter depths of creation, as deep as you can possibly get. See, Jonah sought to escape God's will and God's presence, and God took him to the depths of the sea to teach him, Psalm 139, that even if he makes his bed in Sheol, God is there. If he dwelt in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there God's hand would lead him and his right hand would hold him. There's nowhere that he could go to escape the presence of God. See, when we run from God, if we are his people, if we are in his covenant, God runs with us. He does not let us go. There really is nowhere to run where God cannot see us, where he does not hold us, where he does not reign. Even the waves and the billows that passed over Jonah were his. It's much like the image of Noah and the flood. 
And in Israel, walking through the Red Sea, that God parts so they can pass through those chaotic waters. See, God saves Jonah through the chaotic waters representing separation from God. God is very present and sovereign over those waters that represented the absence of their God. And take note, great distress drove Jonah to sense the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the sovereignty of God in his life. It was distress that taught him that, that caused him to look at that, to understand that, to know that. And distress in life, it is intended, it ought to drive us to God, not away from God. See, when we have nowhere else to look but God for what only God can do, we find God high lifted up. And where is your distress driving you this morning? I'm sure there are all kinds of distress that are here this morning. And I think that God would just ask you, where is it driving you? Is it driving you to me, to my people, to prayer, to call out to me, to seek my face, to know me, to look to my word, to seek others, to help me speak into my life? Or is it sending you running from God? You know, I think that it should be driving you to hope in God. Take note, the God who drove Jonah out also lifted Jonah up in verses 5 to 7. Did you see that? The God that he saw as driving him out also lifted him up. See, our second thing that we see in these verses is that Jonah remembered the God who can bring life from death. That's what he remembered from the belly of that fish. Did you catch the hope of verse 4? Jonah, he, he said, yet I shall again look on your holy temple. I mean, talk about the power of positive thinking. Like, thank you, Tony Robbins. He would be proud. Thinking to yourself in the belly of this fish, in the, the bottom of the ocean, hey, I'm, I'm going to be in the temple of the Lord again. I just can't wait to be there. What about you guys? Oh, I'm alone. And yet in this moment, he has hope that enters into this hopeless situation. It's a beautiful picture of the way that the gospel can be at work in our lives. See, Jonah can't see his hand in front of his face and the belly of this fish, but he sees the God, his God, high and lifted up in the temple with crystal clarity and believes that he will be back in his presence in the temple in Jerusalem again. What kind of hope is that? It's not a worldly hope. So how can we dare to believe this? Well, notice what he says in verses 5 to 7. In verses 5 to 7, he says this. He says, the waters closed in over me to take my life, and the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head and the roots of, at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars close upon me forever. And yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. See, when Jonah was sinking, the fish came and swallowed him and saved him from certain death. That's how he was brought up from the pit. It was in this fish. This fish became like a submarine arc hybrid, rescuing him through death. And his hope was born when he remembered the Lord in that ark. He went down yet deeper to the land whose bars close upon him forever, death. And he says, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Do you see it? Jonah says he remembered the Lord. He remembered the Lord who is sovereign over even life and death. Now, you know you're in a bad place if the prophet forgets the Lord, right? Like, that's a bad place. If the prophet who is supposed to tell you the word of God has forgotten who God is, we're in a bad place. And so, how is it that he forgot God? Well, see, 
he forgot the God that commands death to spit his people out on the dry land. Now, I think there are a lot of factors in how we can forget God, because we can forget God too. We constantly need to be reminded, need to remember who God is. And so how do we remember who God is? Well, I think there are a number of ways. I've got five quick ones. The first is, we can forget God when we step away from the Word of God. We need to meditate on God's Word day and night. This would also mean, I believe, stepping away from our need of Christ as the living Word. Now, let me just be super clear. Step away from the Bible and you step away from Jesus. Jesus' Word is heard in the Scriptures. But also, if you step away from the living Word, the person of Jesus by faith, and your need of Him, then you will step away from trusting the voice of the Good Shepherd. So step away from the voice of Jesus, and you will step away from the person of Jesus. You, you can't move towards the person of Jesus without moving towards the voice of Jesus in the Scriptures. Does that make sense? Are we together? So if we want to be near Christ, union with Christ, faith with Christ, and feel a sense of Him, we need to be in His Word. And it is a, a false dichotomy if you say that you can have one without the other, that you can have Jesus without His voice, or you can have His voice without having Him. We need to have and meet with God in his word. Second, stepping away from obeying God's word. I think we all have experienced this. Faithlessness leads to a lack of faith. Faithfulness leads to faith and confidence in God. Faithfulness leads to faith and confidence in God. Disobedience leads to doubt. So we need to trust and obey God's word. Jonah didn't trust and obey God's word. Stepping away third, stepping away from the, from the people of the word. It's another way that we can fall away, that we can forget God. Stepping away from the people of the word. See, we need other believers to stir us up towards love and good works as we see the great day of the Lord approaching, as Hebrews 10 tells us. We need to be stirred up towards trusting God's word. Uh, We can forget God's word when we step away from praying the words of God back to him. See, God's word should shape the way that we speak back to him. Our prayer reflects our hearts. The things that we long for, that we pray for, that we seek. Your prayers tell you something about how you see God, yourself, and others, and whether or not you have a perspective that is God-shaped. And so we need to make sure that we are praying the Word of God to God. A good way to do that is to start your prayer life by just reading some Scripture before you pray and letting that Scripture guide the way that you speak back to God, praying for the things that He tells us that we should pray for, loving and valuing the things that He values. So do your prayers reflect God's character and his will for us. Well, here's the beautiful thing. If you're getting scared and you're like, am I ever going to learn how to pray right? Well, we're told also that the Holy Spirit helps us pray. Romans 8, 26 to 27, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. It's often true. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And finally, we we forget when we step away from acknowledging the pervasive sovereignty of God in all of life, giving him praise and petitioning his help. We need to be reminded constantly that Jesus is king. We need to be constantly reminding ourselves of his sovereignty and his goodness for us. But all of these will leave us thinking of ourselves as the, the captains of our souls if we forget who God is. But catch this, hope was born when Jonah's distress led him to seek the face of God in his holy temple full of sovereign glory, trusting that he alone was able to lift him from this pit. So distress led Jonah to remember his God. Isn't that a beautiful thing? He's distressed, and then he remembers God. And Maybe that's what God's trying to do in your life. But there's 
one final thing that we see here, and that's this, that God's salvation from death leads to mission in verses 8 to 9. He finds mission and purpose in God's salvation from death. Notice here, don't miss the change of heart. He says the idols in this verse are no longer to be worshipped. Look there with me at how Jonah re-ups with God. Here's what he says in verses 8 to 9. He said, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay, salvation belongs to the Lord. I mean, just, just look at that change of heart. The idols and the God alternatives, they are blind, deaf, dumb, and lead to death. The sailors of Jonah 1 prayed to all those gods except the one true God. And do you remember what happened? Nothing. Nothing changed when they prayed to those gods. But look how different Jonah's God looks. Running from God, he says, means forsaking the hope of steadfast love. Now this word for steadfast love, chesed, it actually points to a kind of covenant fidelity that God has for his people. And Jonah announces a renewed intent of heart to hope not in himself, but in his God. Did you catch that? In Jonah 1, he ran for fear of God's will. In Jonah 2, he's hoping in God's steadfast love for his people. That is a change of heart. That's a change of perspective. See, refusing to forsake it again, this love, that is his new heart. His heart shift led to a perspective shift. He's declaring that the ground of his hope is that the God he abandoned will not abandon him. And don't miss this. Jonah fled God, only discover that there's no better place to be and that God will not abandon him. What a beautiful reality. The ground of his hope is that the God he abandoned will not abandon him. Don't miss this. Jonah fled God only to discover that there's no better place to be than the very presence of God. And this is beautiful. From the depths of despair and death, when all seems hopeless, Jonah cried. He called out to God. And did you notice that God came running with help? What a beautiful thing. You would think of all people, this is the guy that God gives up on. And yet Jonah cries from the depths of despair and God runs to help this prophet. Jonah prayed to God and God saved Jonah. Jonah is only now catching up to the sailors who had sacrificed to the Lord and made vows in chapter 1. And and I take this vow, commentators use it in different ways, but it seems to be that Jonah is going to obey God regardless of the cost for him on out. Maybe it's a vow to praise God. Maybe it's a a vow to obey God in his prophet role. But, But for sure it means that he's going to keep that first commandment, that he will have no other gods than God. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, why did he just bring in like this idolatry stuff and this really powerful story about God sovereignly saving him from a fish that looks like death? Well, I think there's a reason. It's because, again, this letter is for Israel. Do you remember? It's really for Israel, even though it's about Nineveh. And you'll remember in 2 Kings 14 that Jeroboam II led his people in worshiping other gods, doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So this should have been a corrective to Israel who thought God had abandoned them when in fact, catch this, they had abandoned God for idols. They should have seen this and understood this. And how would this be impactful to further future generations as they would wonder, why is it that we are under judgment right now? It's because they had disobeyed God and they had pursued other gods that cannot help them 
like the true God of Israel. See, Jonah made a vow. He will prophesy to the Ninevites as God uh, told him to prophesy. He will praise God to all who will listen. But the main point of this prayer in the fish that may look like judgment comes in the last line. Did you notice how it ends? Salvation belongs to the Lord. The monster of death was actually an instrument of life in the Redeemer's hands. That fish brought Jonah's heart back to the sovereign God who saves. God is not safe, but God is good. But Jonah points to one who is greater, one who is better. See, we don't just need the example of Jonah. We need one greater than Jonah. And in the New Testament, we find that greater one is Jesus. Jesus is the one who not only spent three days in the belly of death, of Sheol, and then was rescued, he is the one who actually can lead us out. See, Jesus says that he is one greater than Jonah in Matthew 12. If you uh, have time later today, you can go and look there. Uh, You'll remember that in that text, he's speaking to scribes and Pharisees. And as he's speaking to them, they're the religious elite of the day. And Jesus says that they need something more than works or religion to save them. See, they were looking for a sign from Jesus that would change their minds about him. They wanted him to impress them so that they could have faith that was anchored to some miracle. And Jesus responds in Matthew 12, 39 to 4, saying this. In 12, 39 to 40, he says this, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. See, Jesus didn't just metaphorically defeat death. He didn't just calm the chaotic waters of separation from God. At the cross, he defeated sin, death, and the devil, and also held at bay the wrath of God and absorbed it for us, making for us the only way to God. He is the only way to get to God. And on the third day, he gave us the great sign that we all have to reckon with as humans. He was raised gloriously from the death. Jesus lives. He lives to tell the story about how he was raised by God from the death and defeated death. See, Jonah, he survived death. He, he survived. But Jesus defeated death at the cross. And Christians, cannot, uh, can, <clears throat> Christians can connect with Jonah here very well. See, in Christ, we are saved through the waters of chaos and baptism. Have you ever thought about that when we baptize believers? It is a picture of salvation through judgment. There's a sense in which we are saved by virtue of the fact that we are in Christ as our greater ark. He is the one in whom we go through those judgment waters and yet live. That's why Romans 6.4, speaking of water baptism, says this. We are buried therefore with him, Jesus, by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you see it? We, like Jonah, have been saved from death in Christ. And baptism is a sign that we have been born again and live for the will of God despite our circumstances because we have new hearts. Jonah left that fish vowing to live for God. That's what a sense of the sovereign God who saves us ought to do for us. It should drive us to serve him with all that is in us. You know, I I love the line um, from John Newton's great hymn, Amazing Grace, Uh, He was a a horrific sailor, uh, a really horrible guy, who found himself in the midst of distress and a storm that he thought was going to take his life. And it terrorized him so much that he began to think about his relationship with God and Christ, and it led ultimately to him putting his faith in Jesus. 
And he became a great pastor, even a pastor that was known for being happy all the time. You'll remember he wrote Amazing Grace. And in that song, there's this beautiful line where he says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Same grace. The grace that taught me to fear the judgment of God, the judgment that that I deserve, and grace that taught me that the only way to find salvation is to be found in Jesus Christ alone. Only he can can lead me through those judgment waters. If you're not a believer this morning, there is only one way to God. There's only one way to salvation from death. There's only one way to have an answer to the distress that we all face on that last day when we face death, and that is in the cross of Christ and Jesus Christ. And the confirmation that we have is his resurrection that tells us that we can trust that he has done what he ought to do. In fact, the power of the resurrection is seen so clearly in 1 Corinthians 15. I told you that death was pictured as a mouth. Well, it's there in that chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul is meditating on the meaning of the resurrection. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 56. He says, on that day when Jesus returns... When we are given new bodies, when we are raised from the dead ultimately, when death shall reign no more, he says this. He says, on that day, the saying that was said shall come to pass, will come to pass in this. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is a law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ? Do you see what he's saying? He says that here, death is swallowed up in victory. Jesus was swallowed up in death, and then he walked out. And then the image here is is that the the death that tried to swallow Jesus, Jesus says, guess what? I'm swallowing you death. I am swallowing you up in the victory of what I accomplished at the cross. And that's true for everybody that's put their faith in Jesus. Isn't that a good thing to know that we have hope in the resurrection, that we too shall live forever with Christ? That's good news, right? So let's live there and work back. Let's pray.